Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in this week for Jerome McDonald as he's out there camping in the wilderness in Wisconsin. He'll be back on Monday. So what would you do if you knew that your government had evidence and provided evidence that potentially thousands more people will die and die early because of a policy change, but yet decided to go through it anyway? With us with the answer is Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center here based in Chicago. Hi, Howard. How are you? Hi, Steve. Good to join you. So give us an interesting factoid about what I just talked about in the introduction. Here, the Trump administration's EPA has issued its misguided new affordable clean energy rule, which is really a do-little, do-nothing plan when it comes to climate change solutions. And that's the challenge of our generation, the moral, the business, the personal, the political, the technological challenge of our generation. What's remarkable here is in their zeal to get rid of the clean power plant, which was adopted during the Obama administration, the Trump EPA has adopted what they call the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. And by their own analysis, Steve, exactly what you were talking about, their new rule would result in more pollution, and they estimate it will cause 1,630 more early deaths per year. In other words, a little bit more than 1,600 people will die each year as of 2020. And will die early. To the prior run. Right. So their own data is showing them compared to the clean power plant. That's what the Trump EPA is doing. That's not a good deal for the American public. It's not a good deal for the people around the world because climate change is a global problem. And whether the pollution comes from Indiana or Indonesia has the same effect on the atmosphere. So, Howard, let's talk about this. So we're moving away from President Obama's clean power plan. Let's talk about some of the facts and figures and where we were headed and if this plan were to stick, where we may end up. You know, after several years of detailed analysis, comments, rulemaking procedures, and a lot of stakeholder involvement, the EPA under President Obama issued the Clean Power Plan in 2015. And what that did was it set a very reasonable goal of reducing carbon pollution from the electric energy sector by 32% overall by the year 2030. So in other words, a pathway for 15 years for each of the states to be on a budget, in effect, so that overall we would reduce carbon pollution by about a third, 32%. That plan had a lot of flexibility in it. It had clear standards, but a lot of different tools that states could use to reduce or offset carbon pollution. Uh, They could use energy efficiency opportunities and renewable energy opportunities. You could fix up the coal plants. A lot of different things that could be done. Natural gas plants could be used to reduce pollution to some degree. The energy industry had a predictable set of standards for making its investment decisions. That clean power plan then got held up in the courts because of an industry challenge. When the Trump administration came in, they made it very clear they had a zeal, a mission to undo the clean power plan. So they didn't enforce it. They sought in the courts to delay the enforcement of it. And they adopted their own plan, which finally came out uh, yesterday. Uh, which they call, it's sort of quaint, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. Uh, That clean energy rule is on the wrong side of history, and it's on the wrong side of the law when it comes to the Clean Air Act. And what it does is it avoids 
many of the tools and techniques being done under the Clean Power Plan that would have reduced carbon pollution by 32%, and instead it allows coal plant operators to do little or do nothing. Howard Lerner is the executive director of the Environmental Policy and Law Center. Coming up soon on WBEZ 91.5, you'll hear an interview that Jerome McDonald did with an eyewitness to the deadly government crackdown in South Korea at the 1980 Kwangju democracy protest. It is a graphic conversation, but one that you definitely do not want to miss. And so um, according to uh, facts and figures, especially by the uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration, there are 742 operating coal units of one megawatt or more uh, here in the United States. And that actually, even though the Trump administration, President Trump himself, uh, has promised and continues to say coal is back, the facts prove out that 50 coal plants have shut down since President Trump took office. Yeah, Steve, to sort of adjust your numbers a little bit, 750 plants above one megawatt is what you're referring to. One megawatt is actually pretty small. If you look at the larger coal plants in Illinois, you know, you're dealing with a universe of roughly 20, a little bit less than 20 coal plant units. And those are big. Those are several hundred megawatts. Those are the opportunities to force the cleanup, really reduce pollution, and help protect the public. And the fact of the matter is a lot of those plants around the country and in Illinois are beginning to close down. The reason is they're not economic. Natural gas beats them. Natural gas still produces carbon pollution, but about half as much as a coal plant. And as solar energy plus storage is coming into the market, it's creating jobs. It's less expensive. Wind power is less expensive. So we're getting cleaner energy. And what's out there are some old, highly polluting coal plants that are simply not economically competitive in the market. And that's why the Trump administration is working so hard to try to bail them out. The fact of the matter is the coal plants won't be economic in many cases unless they're subsidized for the public, by the public. And why should we be subsidizing a bunch of old coal plants that are making our air quality worse, are leading to public health problems, environmental problems, pollution in the Great Lakes, and climate change problems that affect all of us. So, Howard, obviously the argument, the pushback on that is that if you cut out coal, tens of thousands of people will lose their jobs. So what are some alternatives for what's waiting for these people as they are losing their jobs? Well, first of all, there are far more jobs in states like Illinois in the renewable energy industry these days than in the coal industry. So you're talking about jobs growing as more solar energy plus storage, uh, as more wind power comes into the market, as energy efficiency comes into the market. That's the big job growth in states like Illinois, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, here in the Midwest, in Iowa, and around the country. Far more jobs in the renewable energy sector than there are in the coal sector. I respect people who spent their lives working in coal mines, and I respect people who've worked in coal plants to run them over the years. Uh, these are real people with real jobs, um, but we've seen what happens in transitional industries. You know, we've seen what happens to workers who were at Kodak when digital cameras came in. We're looking at plants 
around Chicago and around the state of Illinois, manufacturing plants that unfortunately have shut down and people have lost their jobs. We ought to be smart about how we transition and provide opportunities for the workers in the coal mines and the coal plants. Uh, But that's different than saying keep those highly polluting plants running subsidize them to run, the taxpayers or the consumers subsidize them to run, and then lead to more costs through worse health and early deaths and more problems for people because of lots of pollution and climate change. That's not the right solution. Well, let's talk about it from the policy angle. So as you have this transition from dirty energy to clean energy, one of the arguments that we can't afford to do that or it'll be too environment, it'll be too economically costly. And so if you were to advise uh, municipalities and state governments, um, Mm -hmm. what would you say would be the path and the route to uh, making these transitions, you know, uh, realistic, easy? First of all, the best, the fastest, the cheapest, and the most environmentally friendly solution to our climate change problems is energy efficiency. Whether it's in people's homes or office buildings or commercial buildings in downtown Chicago or in our universities and schools, there's lots of opportunities to make these buildings more energy efficient. Better lighting, better heating and ventilation, better thermostatic controls, you know, using all the new technology that's becoming available. So when you're more energy efficient, what does that mean? It means you're using less electricity, you're saving money on your utility bills. That's helping us in our pocketbooks at home. It's helping on the bottom lines for businesses. It's saving us money and reducing pollution. That's a no-brainer. We need to be really bullish on energy efficiency. And I know there are a lot of steps that have been taken you know, by the city of Chicago and others, but you can walk around office buildings, you know, in downtown Chicago, you can walk around our schools and colleges and universities, and you can see a lot of things that can be done. You know, we're leaving a lot of energy efficiency opportunities um, yet undone. What's happened that's interesting is it used to be that solar energy and storage were too expensive, some said or wind power was too expensive. But what's happening in the market now is that the cleaner energy resources today are actually less expensive and the price is dropping like a rock. One quick factoid, um, and I don't expect anybody here to you know, like know all the per watt numbers, but 10 years ago, a solar panel cost close about $4 per watt in terms of the amount of electricity produced. Today, you're dealing in the 30 cent range. So in other words, it's come down by a factor of 12. The price of solar, and increasingly the price of storage, the price of wind power is dropping like a rock. Well, the thing is, Howard, it's interesting is, um, and a lot of people can identify with this, that uh, I'm constantly being accosted in Walmart or on <laughs> or outside of businesses by people who are who are wanting to cut the deal with me about getting my energy cheaper and then telling me how ComEd is in on is in on the job is is in on it as well. So it's really interesting sort of the transition that's happened in the last few years. Well, that's right. And we all sort of know that's happened from telecom. You know, it used to be, if you're over a certain age, you remember there was only one telephone provider. It was Illinois Bell. And then sort of MCI came into the market competing. You know, today, if if you use a cell phone, which 98% of us do, you can buy from 
Verizon or T-Mobile or Sprint or AT&T, Boost and some of the other providers. I don't mean to leave anybody out. But there's competition there, and they offer different packages. And if you're somebody who makes a lot of calls uh, overseas, some of them are better. If you're somebody who doesn't make many calls, they have rate structures that are better for you. And if you're somebody in between, you can compare and contrast. And, you know, if your kids are on one thing, you have friends and family rates, maybe you all want to be on the same thing. Sure. That's what we're seeing happen, in, you know, in wireless services. So you're beginning to see that happen a little bit more in electricity. But the fact of the matter today is the first and best thing people can do in their homes, if you have old incandescent bulbs, swap them out for LEDs. LEDs are about 90, 95% more efficient. They don't cost much more these days. They're practically all you're going to find on the shelves right now of uh, SBI hardware stores and so forth. And they last longer, which means you have to change them less. Uh, they produce a huge amount of savings for people, highly cost-effective. And ditto, if you're looking to buy a new refrigerator or if you're looking to buy another appliance, look for the ones with the Energy Star on it. They're just more energy efficient. Your refrigerator, about anything you buy today compared to, say, 10 years ago, uh, will be about 30%, probably higher, more efficient. And keep in mind that refrigerator runs 24-7. So as all of our appliances and our lighting, buildings, and everything become more energy efficient, what that means is less pollution, and it means we don't need the, the old highly polluting coal plants as much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and I'm speaking with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. And stay tuned on WBEZ 91.5 when you will hear the eyewitness testimony of a person who was at the Gwangju Democracy protest in South Korea in 1980. It's a graphic conversation, but one you do not want to miss. And so despite the fact that the Trump administration has pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord and um, is reversing President Obama's clean power plan, countries and cities around the world, as well as states and cities here in the United States, have stepped up and said that they're going to still maintain and still move towards these goals. Uh, One example is the um, Illinois Clean Energy Jobs Act. Governor Pritzker is still committed to that. So let's talk about what's happening here in Illinois. Well, what we're seeing is while the federal government under President Trump steps back, States and cities are stepping up with positive climate change solutions because it makes good economic sense and because we all realize that doing something about our climate change problems isn't an option, it's an imperative. So Illinois is stepping up with the Future Energy Jobs Act. Uh, That provides in part uh, a set of renewable energy standards and the Solar for All program that should lead to about 4,500 megawatts of new solar energy and wind industry, uh, wind development in Illinois. 3,000 of that is solar. And let me just give your listeners a perspective. 3,000 megawatts of solar energy is equivalent to more than a million solar panels being installed. Mm, That's a lot of solar panels. That's a lot of clean energy. That's a lot less pollution. And that's a lot of good jobs for people installing and putting the solar panels on roofs, on the ground, and in places that produce clean energy. You know, across the state border, NIPSCO, the utility in northwest Indiana, and Consumers Energy in southwest Michigan are really stepping up in terms of solar energy 
and moving forward with a cleaner energy. Howard, do you have an op-ed out called The Misguided Affordable Clean Energy Rule is on the wrong side of history. And you say in this, what you just mentioned, that the Midwest is uh, making great strides and shifting to renewable energy. Uh, what is it about this region, uh, the Environmental Policy and Law Center, is based here in Chicago. So talk about um, some of the work you've seen happening in the Midwest and in the Chicago area and why you feel like this part of the country is a leader. The Midwest is stepping up because we're practical people. The Midwest, some call the Saudi Arabia of wind power. Who'd have thought that Illinois would be the number five or four state in the country in terms of wind power development? You know, when we talked about Illinois' wind power potential about 15 years ago, some folks thought maybe we're blowing hot air. What we've seen are the growth of corporate headquarters for the wind industry in downtown Chicago, and those are corporate headquarters jobs. And what we're seeing are the growth of wind farms around the state, and those are construction jobs and operating jobs. And a lot of the components are companies in Illinois that make it. There are more than 450 companies in the solar energy, wind energy efficiency, and geothermal supply chain in Illinois. And Iowa is one of the very top states in the country in absolutely, terms of wind power. Absolutely, absolutely. You drive west on I-80, and it's amazing all of the windmills that you see. You just wouldn't expect yeah. that. You know, in Iowa, if you count the number of megawatts, they have a little bit less than Texas and California. But, you know, but you talk to most Iowans and point out per capita, Iowa's number one in the country in wind power. So we have great wind power resources here. We have lots of opportunities with buildings and warehouses with big flat roofs for solar to accelerate very quickly. And energy efficiency is just sort of practical solutions that Midwesterners do. We also earlier this year interviewed Greg Ballard, a Republican, former mayor of uh, Indianapolis. And um, he he has a book out called Less Oil or More Caskets, where he makes a national security argument behind um, going to clean and renewable energy. Exactly. When he was the mayor of Indianapolis, Mayor Ballard uh, really began to try to move the city forward on electric vehicles. And that was his key point. His point was, if we want to reduce the amount of foreign oil that we're importing, uh, electric vehicles help us do that. And that's not just good for reducing pollution. Uh, it's good in terms of our national security. Howard Lerner is executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center based here in Chicago. And we've been talking about the uh, Trump administration's EPA announcing that they are cutting back on some of the um, regulatory goals of President Obama's clean power plan. Howard, thanks for joining us. Good to join you and your listeners, Steve. The focus on the Korean Peninsula happens to be on the dictatorial government in North Korea. But South Korea also has a recent history with authoritarianism and oppression. Coming up next on WBEZ 91.5, Worldview brings you a conversation Jerome McDonald had with an eyewitness to the deadly government crackdown in South Korea at the 1980 Kwangju democracy protest. It is a riveting and graphic conversation but one that you definitely do not want to miss. I'm Steve Bynum, in this week for Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5.
Texas Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. Now we'll hear about a pivotal event in South Korean history. After South Korean dictator Park Yong-hee was assassinated in 1979, students took to the streets to protest the imposition of martial law. In May of the following year, South Korea's military brutally put down the movement in the southern city of Gwangju. At least 600 people were killed. A fourth official investigation into the Gwangju massacre was recently opened by President Moon Jae-in. Last month, Jerome McDonald spoke with a participant in the Gwangju movement while she was in Chicago to speak at the Hana Center. But first, he talked with In Hae Choi, who runs the Hana Center, which does community organizing and advocacy for the Korean American community. Jerome asked In Hae how the Gwangju movement imprinted itself on the Korean consciousness. This moment, this May uh, in 1980, really is a core symbol of democracy movement or anyone who's really working for any human rights, any effort to make the world a better place. This is a really core central place and symbolizes all of that struggles, not only in Gwangju and Korea, but all around the world, and especially to the diaspora. And right now, um, they're opening a fourth government investigation into the Gwangju uprising. There's still things that people think they don't know, and there's going to be an uh, investigation into sexual assault and how it was used in the Gwangju uprising. So this investigation really is a, has been a continuing effort by the people of Gwangju, particularly with a focus around accurate recording of what had actually happened, who was there, what, whose efforts, whose efforts were working toward justice, whose efforts were trying to diminish and torture and commit continuous atrocities. So it's really about an effort to uh, have the correct history. So that's the effort of it. There was some misinformation and misrecording of that time. And Chun Doo-wan, the military leader at that time, he was actually tried and found guilty of um, and sentenced to life and later pardoned. But South Korea has gone over this pretty thoroughly. Yes, but people of Gwangju still feel that the portrayal of that time is still not adequate. There's so many that have really struggled through, but in particularly by the everyday people. There were more everyday people, thousands more. In fact, a lot of the leaders, the intellectuals, a lot of the organizations and all those people actually fled the scene at the time for the safety, and many of them are prisoned. So for that matter, the people who were there who really kept Gwangju and rebelled and really got organized with everyday people. So the desire really is to really uplift those voices, those roles, those figures who actually struggled so much, but they their voices really have been silent. And there were really everyday people, women, young people at the time, people who were not, quote unquote, bona fide leaders. And you brought one to us in Chicago, uh, someone who has only recently begun telling her story. And Myung Suk Cha was 19 and was one of the young people who were taking part in the uprising in 1980. And thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us a little about yourself at age 19 and what you were doing and who you were and wh- wh- how you got involved in the uprising? Uh, so I was born in the year of the ox. 
prelude to the 18th. There were already demonstrations and some violence. Um, and then I actually saw from my own eyes these fires and merciless violence and merciless uh, violence toward people. And it was a very time of so much fear and confusion. But anybody, myself including, I was young, but there were other young people, other people like me who saw, who felt... I had to do, I had to jump in. You would have done the same. 다시 18일, 17일 계엄 선포하면서 18일 날 저뿐만 아니라 많은 사람들이 자연스럽게 함께 하게 되는 그런 동. Explain what you did because you eventually got into broadcast trucks and you were talking to people and encouraging them to to come out into the streets and and, and sharing news with them. Explain what you were doing. 음, 저는 이제 최초로 그 앰프 그 학성기 그걸로 해서 이제 강주 시민들에게 I was one of the very first team of young people, women, broadcasters. Um, at the time, what was happening, people didn't know because there was no uh, tool or no uh, mode of communication. Um, and so we were we were the broadcasters, and we just used the amp speakers. And we walked around and just let people know that there was violence on the streets. There were soldiers coming down. And so we called ourselves the street broadcasters. And that's what I did. And there were some foreign correspondents. There is actually a famous, well-known, and there were movies made about him, a uh, German foreign correspondent that came and shared the news. And, you know, we were actually trying to confiscate those films because we don't want our faces to be shown because then if we were to be uh, shown, we may be subject to target for the, from the soldiers. But at the same time, our goal was really to let people know what was happening because there was no mode of communication at the time. And can you explain a little about the different waves of the massacres that happened and when people... got shot and what the circumstances were. 음, 17일 날 계엄 전국 계엄 확대되면서 18일 날 어, 금남로 오전에 한 11시 So May 17th was the beginning of announcement of the martial law. And already there were soldiers coming coming down from the north who were hitting in the mountains. They were coming and actually there was a very first victim who fell off of a building. And that was kind of the initial part of the brutal violence that was to occur. And on the 18th, when the government came down with the tanks and all of that, that that was a lot of killing at that time. And and from there, from the 18th, the 19th is when people really started to wake up. That's when all the organizing started to happen. Um, then that's when the the street broadcasting was happening and they got organized and really took care of themselves and, and then started to also get armed when any negotiation wasn't going anywhere. So from the 20th to the 22nd was that's when the real massive uh, atrocities that really occurred on the streets and they, all the images that we saw were during those days. 
경찰이 수사관들에 의하면 제가 방송을 해서 20만 원 모았고 200만이 그때 200이 죽었다라고 이렇게 저한테 네. 얘기했습니다. 네. I'm talking with Myung Suk Cha. She was 19 during the Gwangju uprising in May of 1980, and it's a big event in the democratization movement of South Korea. She was uh, jailed and tortured for uh, two years subsequently. Um, I wanted to ask about um, what you saw the the larger shootings and what what happened there. What what exactly went down when when people are bringing tanks in and you know massive military power? How did how did that happen? 군인들이 이십 날 오월 이십 일 탱커를 on the twentieth of May there were tanks. Already there, and that had already done the first round of killing, and the soldiers actually retreated. Especially as the citizens really responded and started to fight with whatever they had, and it was a scene of just countless of coffins, wooden coffins, and so much blood. I saw a truck that I thought it was painted, and once I walked up close, it was all blood. Uh, those kind of scenes were everywhere, and soldiers actually left a lot of their weaponry to retreat for those days. And in that time, the the police and the citizens of area, other cities, actually brought arms into Gwangju. And what was also happening is that the police chief of the Cheolla Province actually rejected the orders, direct orders from Chun Doo-hwan, who ordered them to take arm and shoot. Target the citizens, and they said these are our brothers and sisters, and we're not going to do that. That is not the role of the police. So they also actually supported by uh, having young people who are being targeted actually have them wear their own uniforms as a way for them to sneak out and be hiding, and they supported the citizens and the citizens' army, and and then so they also withheld information so not to cooperate with the soldiers, and so they call themselves the citizens' army. Uh, it was a revolutionary group that got regrouped and got organized as people, and so mothers were supporting. They were they were feeding people, and so from May 21st p.m. on, when the clash happened, the clash happened again. The citizens' army felt that they were also equipped to fight. So our citizens are we have to defend ourselves. The soldiers have left the weapons, weapons, tanks, and 다시 이렇게 저희가 확보를 하죠. 그런 과정입니다. What happened to you during that time? It sounded like you were doing something that a lot of other women were doing. You were organizing and defending yourselves. Uh, what, what, what happened that three or four days before you were arrested? 어, 저는 이제 어, 처음에 이제 어떤 그 주목바 Until the 21st, from the 19th, I was a part of everyday citizens making food, making uh, fist rice balls, uh, water, just to feed everybody who was protesting. And, of course, my main role was communicating. Um, there was another woman who was broadcasting with me, and there was another woman that got uh, arrested. I think it's her. I'm not sure who it was. But there was, a among the soldiers and the, the Army folks, that they were saying that there are women with unclear identity 
that are doing these broadcasting and mobilizing people to come out. Um, I believe that they didn't think that young women had any power to really mobilize people. But the level of mobilization, even after the first woman got arrested, the amount of people that showed up and came out to really fight, they were shocked. They were shocked at the power. And so uh, they already began the investigation to try to find these broadcasters who are mobilizing its people. So they started to really frame that there were North Korean spies. That's what they were doing this. And that that framework that ended up being framed started to begin in this time. Explain about your detention when you got detained and what happened from there. 저는 이제 개원군한테 체포된 게 아니고 경찰 수사관 이게 대공군실. Um, so I was at the hospital. I was tending to the wounded, cleaning the dead bodies. And there were investigators that were looking out for my face. My face was out there. People were looking for me. And so they found me when I was at the hospital. And they just walked up to me and said, I just want to have a word with you. And that was actually when I got arrested. And I just remember, I couldn't really think straight, but I remember beautiful rows of beautiful green trees and long steps going down underneath the building. And I found myself in this investigating room uh, where I was tortured uh, for three days. And I was framed as a North Korean spy. And the question that kept repeatedly asking for me is, who told you who's behind you, your North Korean spy? Do you think the people being detained really believe you were a North Korean spy, or were they just trying to create some kind of story or thing? Um, They for sure knew that I was not a North Korean spy. They knew that for sure. They were ordered. There was a narrative about what needed to happen, and I fit into that narrative. And that narrative really was that this Chandwan regime is working hard to keep order in this chaotic society, and that they did their best to really stop the North Korean uh, agenda to come and invade the South Korean and that they really kept the civil society in order because they stopped these North Korean spies. I'm talking with Myung-suk Cha. She was 19 and one of the young people who joined the May 1980 Gwangju Uprising. The South Korean military brutally put down the protests in Gwangju. Estimates are around 600 people were killed. The incident remains a controversial and important touchstone for South Koreans. A fourth official government investigation into the Gwangju uprising was recently opened by President Moon.
Jerome McDonald continues this chilling conversation with Min Suk Cha coming up on 91.5 WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. And before the break, we were listening to Jerome interview Myun Suk Cha, a survivor of the May 1980 Gwangju uprising in South Korea. She was one of the students who opposed the imposition of martial law by the South Korean government, and she was declared a collaborator and spy for North Korea. I want to ask about how you got out of prison. And there was a trial, I would imagine, some sort of trial, and you were in jail for two years. Um, what happened there? So the fact that I fit into the narrative from the South Korean Chunduwan government saying that um, by stopping these two North Korean spy women who are broadcasting and mobilizing, by stopping them, and the fact that, that we stopped and got civil society order back to Gwangju and to the country, that propaganda, that actually has now been recorded as the record, historical record as to how it happened and why it happened. So I received a 15-year sentencing, um, and there was a, a military tribunal that allowed me to leave in 1981 uh, with a parole. But preceding all that was really, um, I was tortured, continued to be tortured inside the prison, and they continued to tell them who was behind it and to really con- uh, admit that I was a North Korean spy. Uh, so that torture continued, and I was in solitary confinement. I was also restrained. Many things happened. But following that tribunal and getting the parole, I had to report when I was leaving Seoul, all this, and I was I was still being followed by intelligence officers. How do you begin to re-piece your life after something like that? When I was in prison, I was by myself, and I dealt with the pain, all the struggles. It was still me. That's all I was thinking about in that time. Once I got out, I had family, I had relatives, I had others around me, and they were all impacted by my role, my history. And I knew that I was surveilled still 24 hours a day and always aware that my neighbors, anybody, could still question or call the police. And when I got out, the propaganda or the message about myself being North Korean, there was always suspicion by everybody around me, and nobody believed me. And I could also try to convince, but that was not something that I could, I felt that I could do or to be focused on. And somebody introduced me to a um, Catholic priest named Ham Se-young priest, and he believed me, and he gave me hope. And so he really encouraged me to be 
keeping myself busy and contribute. So I volunteered a lot through his connections to seniors and children. And even wherever I go, I would be going to other towns and other cities and continuing this type of work. And I knew that I was still being followed and being watched and investigated. And they would come to wherever I was and continue to ask questions about my conduct and who I was doing. Um, But I worked with a lot of the people who are ill, people who died, who had no families, and I would uh, do p- p- participate in rituals in helping the dead. Uh, so I really owe uh, building of my life post-prison and post-Gwangju uh, uh, through this priest. I'm talking with Myung Suk Cha. She was 19 during the Gwangju uprising in May of 1980, and it's a big event in the democratization movement of South Korea. She was uh, jailed and tortured for uh, two years subsequently. When did the situation begin to change and the country reevaluated the Gwangju massacre and there were prosecutions and people began talking. How did you come to want to talk about this again? After two years of prison, I went back to Gwangju. Uh, when I went back to Gwangju, the propaganda about my being or, or questioned of being a North Korean spy was prevalent. And so I was met with cold shoulders, uh, people not believing me. And so for me, it felt very cold. And I'd like to express that that feeling of isolation and the feeling of rejection as really being ice being poured onto the corpse. And so for me, for two more years uh, after returning to Gwangju, I, Gwangju became something actually, a memory that I wanted to work so hard to erase out of my whole system. And a few years later, I got married. I had two children. This is 16 years later, actually. And uh, people started to talk about Gwangju again. And there were more public conversations and, and discussions about what had happened. And stories about me were being falsely shared again. And so at that time, I was still very isolated. And I just wanted to really just forget all of that. And the faith leaders around me really encouraged me that you really need to correct that part of the history. You have your children. So that's when I got the courage. And my children were second grade and in fourth grade. And I took them. And I went to Gwangju for the first time. And I held a a press conference. I first went to the cemetery where all the dissidents of Gwangju, who all the people who got massacred and slaughtered, are resting. I went there and realized that People have dignity. People's humanity need to be respected. And so uh, for me, they're gone, they're dead, but I'm alive. And that my dignity need to be restored. So I held a press conference to talk about what had happened. And that's what, that was the very first time I came out to talk about Gwangju. 
기자들 몇분 부르고 말을 했던 게내 진실을 밝히기 위한 시작이었습니다. What's been the reaction? Do you think that um, Korean society has kind of digested the truth about Kwangju? 그 이후로 제가 이제 목소리를 높이고 저 같은 여성들이 Since the public press conferences that I've shared about my experience, and I really talked about what happened to me, the the struggles that I've endured, in a way that just kind of talks about if you were living in that situation, you jump in and you do the work. That's just the way what people do. I just did that. There's nothing else other than just doing what you would do as a as a solid citizen, as an active citizen. So by coming out to talk about myself and myself being a woman, that really helped and encouraged others who also were active, who also did a lot of work in that time to come out. They were previously with so much trauma, so much struggle. It was hard for them to even talk about it. And there was a lot of shame, even though there was nothing shame, with violence that the people, women especially, have endured in that time. So my story is really encouraging them. So in a way, our community, our country is really uh, having a voice again, the women. And I really want to talk about the critical importance of correct information really being recorded to talk about this time. There were a lot of leaders, a lot of people who were organizers um, who were men. They were already arrested before the 18th. Some people had to flee for reasons to save their lives. These are all very noble and understandable reasons. Uh, there were professors that took taxi back to Seoul before the real massacres have occurred. The mayor of Gwangju took a helicopter and fled. So the city of Gwangju was really left to everyday citizens, children, the mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. It was up to us to defend the city. And now they come out. After, I mean, some of them were not there for understandable reasons, but now they come out and they hold up pictures, they talk about specific incidences as if they were there, that they were the ones who defended it. And that's not right. And I do believe that what we have endured, and especially everyday people, what we have done, and we were strategic and organized, that also needs to be recorded. And these people, these male leaders, if they come out and say, I had to be away for these reasons, and it's amazing, and we're so grateful for the, the strength and the power of everyday citizens, which were really led by many women, that should be how it should be recorded. And that I want to take that and take that on as my focus and my project moving forward. And to really make sure that the message is that, you know, there are mothers and young women who are such key role in really holding Gwangju and remaining that part of the history uh, to be correct, because this is a symbolism of democracy movement, not only in Gwangju, not only in South Korea, but all over Asia and also is impacting Korean diaspora around the world. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us and your courage um, in 1980 and today. And is there anything else you want to say about, about uh, the reputation of democracy in Korea these days or anything? 
Many believe that there is democracy in Korea. I believe that in some ways we do, but that democracy came without much preparation, without much infrastructure. So we have so much more work to do to be able to sustain this movement, to sustain and be stronger moving forward. Um, And in that movement forward, um, Gwangju still is... Um, sort of considered a mecca of democracy and democratic movement in Korea. In modern history, I don't believe that there was anything stronger than what Gwangju, the spirit of Gwangju, the people of Gwangju. And in many ways, we have progressed so much, but uh, it's really, to me, the only the beginning. And that history is so critical, and learning from history is so critical, and that is why accurate record of what happened, who was there, how it happened, what what happened is really, really critical. And I believe and I hope uh, that we were the last generation that struggled and suffered in the way that we did. But my message to the future generation is that we're here to support you. We are going to do everything we can with the history and the infrastructure building of our democratic movement. But the future generation... At every moment that you need to make sure that you be there, be present in a critical moment of any kind of movement and to make sure that you amplify your voice and be present and to continue building. Myung Suk Cha was 19 when she joined the Gwangju Rebellion in 1980 in the democracy movement in South Korea. Thank you very much for joining us, and thanks for your wise words. Also, thank you to In Hae Choi, the executive director of the HANA Center. It's the Chicago-based organization that uplifts uh, Korean-American and immigrant communities. Thanks a lot for interpreting and bringing Myung Suk Cha to us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you once again to Myung Suk Sha for that riveting conversation and to remind us that the price of freedom is always high. Tomorrow on Worldview, film contributor Neil Stalek continues his conversation with former lead critic for the Chicago Reader, Jonathan Rosenbaum, on film movements around the world. And we'll hear about an exhibit at Co-Prosperity Sphere that critiques American monument culture. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by myself, Steve Bynum, and Yulian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum in this week for Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5 FM.